My message today is called, What Story Are You Telling? When Jesus rose from the dead and first appeared to Mary Magdalene, He instructed her to go tell the good news to others. John 20, verse 18. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that He had said these things to her. We are still under those same orders today to go and to tell the story. To tell what Jesus has done for us. To tell what Jesus has done for the world, to those who are interested. And to tell the truth of the Gospel and the truth of God's will. In fact, before Jesus eventually ascended into heaven, He shared exactly what we all should be doing until He comes again. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Listen, Jesus didn't tell us to go and to make Christians. He didn't tell us to go and make believers. He told us to go and make disciples. There's a big difference. He told us to teach people the truth about what Jesus said and about what He did, and it's all fully laid out in the Bible. He made it as easy as possible for us if we were willing to be a disciple. The challenge that many people have is that they often like to assume what Jesus meant so that it fits their comfort level and it doesn't offend others when they talk about Him. However, in this great commission, notice that it, Jesus says, teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you, not just the stuff that you agree with. You see, one of the biggest downfalls today in the church and so-called Christian movements is that people love to tell the story, but it's not always Jesus's story. In attempts to get people to like them and to praise them or to join them, there are many false teachers today. There are many false shepherds and false converts and false ministries that are telling a story of Jesus, but it's not biblically accurate. As a result, we see that the church in general in many places has lost its power. We hear these stories around the world of people being healed and we think, why is that not happening here? It's because the, the message has changed and people a lot of times in, a, in our country are telling a different story and we don't even realize it. I'll tell you that the more that the church looks like the world and less like the Bible, the more it denies its truth and its influence and its power over every part of our lives. One of the most misinterpreted passages in the Bible, and there are many, but one of the most I'm hearing a lot on social media and in different circles, concerns our salvation through Jesus Christ that's taken from events that surround the crucifixion. And maybe you've heard this teaching. Do you recall the two criminals that were crucified on either side of Jesus? 
Okay? This teaching that sprung out of it has become a twisted perversion of what it was intended to be. It's right now, it's spreading like wildfire on social media and in compromised churches through people who do not know or do not teach the whole Bible. I've read and I've heard many multiple false teachers state that the thief on the cross got into heaven simply because Jesus said he could come. I've heard people say he didn't have to be baptized, he didn't have to go to church, he didn't give any money, he didn't do anything, he just said, Jesus, can you let me in? He let me in. It's not what the Bible teaches. So in other words, what they're saying is you don't need to do anything other than to believe in Jesus. They said all he did was believe in Jesus and he got into heaven. That's, that's, that's being taught all over the place right now. So they're saying it to people right now. All you got to do is believe in Jesus. That's it. You'll go to heaven. I'm here to show you today biblically that this statement is entirely misleading and biblically inaccurate. But wait a minute. You might say, well, what about John 3.16? We know John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. There are many who base their whole idea of salvation on their theology of their interpretation of this verse and what it means to believe in Jesus. Many people wrongly teach that all one has to do is to believe in Him and nothing else because Jesus died for our sins. If this is true, then how do you explain this statement in the Bible? James chapter 2, verse 19. It says, You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe, and they tremble. Do you know that Satan and the demons believe in Jesus? The Bible declares this truth. And the demons don't just believe that He's a good teacher like a lot of other religions in the world. They don't just believe He's a good teacher. They believe that He is God. Matthew 8.28. Do you remember this passage? When Jesus had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. Verse 29. And suddenly these demons cried out, because they possessed this man, they cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Multiple times, if you study your Bible and you study the Gospels, when Jesus confronted people who were possessed by demons, the demons spoke clearly, not in coded symbolism or in coded talk, but clearly stated that Jesus was the Son of God. Notice in this passage that they even knew Jesus' claim that they would be tormented at a proper time. Are you going to torment us before the time? They knew that. For Satan and all his demons will one day be cast into the lake of fire. That's in the book of Revelation. And they will be tormented for eternity. So let me ask you, how is it that the demons believe in Jesus and they believe He's the Son of God and yet they will be eternally punished. 
Therefore, there must be something different to our definition of what it means to believe in Jesus. So, to answer this, let's go to Scripture and to read it in its context to see what God really has to say and teach on the matter, because after it all, our eternity is based on knowing the truth of the Word. Luke chapter 23, verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, led with Jesus to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Verse 34, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Here Jesus is speaking about the Roman soldiers who were literally killing him right now. They oversaw the crucifixions while the, while the Jewish leaders demanded that Jesus be crucified. Jesus is saying, God, even though they're killing me, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And today, we get all upset and lash out and slander others and talk badly about them because we think our rights are being taken away. Jesus had his life taken away and he asked God to forgive them. Jesus was tortured mercilessly and killed and He was completely innocent. And instead of calling them names and saying horrible things about them, Jesus instead turns to God, His Father. Don't think that Jesus' lessons stopped as soon as He became arrested. Some of His greatest lessons are while He was on the cross. He turns to God, His Father, and asks that God forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He prays that they will be convicted by His Word because that's what the Word of God does. And when you hear the Word of God and you don't like it, your flesh doesn't like it, it's because it's convicting your flesh to change, to show that you need Jesus. He's hoping that they will be convicted for killing someone who is completely innocent. On this side of heaven, God does whatever He can to bring conviction to us before the judgment. Conviction is brought... Out of love. It's like going down the street and seeing a burning building and knowing there's someone in there and you run into that dangerous situation to rescue someone. God sees us because of our sin in a burning building and He comes to die for us to rescue us. And so He convicts us so that we'll change. Conviction is not given to shame or to condemn or to make us feel bad. It's to make us know that we need Jesus. God does not want anyone to perish. Before Jesus went to the cross, He taught His disciples about the love of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to us. The Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 7, talks about what the Holy Spirit's main job is to do. Verse 7, Nevertheless, Jesus is saying, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, if I ascend into heaven, I will send Him, the Holy Spirit, to you. And when He has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit has a job to do. And He gets right to the point. The first thing He does is He convicts you of your sin because the Bible says that we've all sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And if we respond to this conviction, then we realize that we are sinners. 
The second thing he does is he convicts us of righteousness. This means that because of our sin, we are separated from God. And we can't make it right. Our righteousness is not enough to become right with God. And since God can only have perfect righteousness in His presence, we're separated from Him. But there's nothing that we can do to find favor with God. It doesn't matter how much you give or how many times you attend church or how many good things you do. The Bible says our righteousness is like filthy rags to God. And then finally, the Holy Spirit convicts us of judgment, meaning that if something is not done with our sin, then we will be eternally judged and eternally separated from God. This is what brings a sinner to his or her knees. This is what leads to repentance and a cry to the only one who can forgive us and save us and cleanse us and give us a fullness of joy. Conviction is one of the greatest gifts of God because it is what leads to repentance which precedes biblical salvation. This is what happened on the cross in the story that's being perverted. When one of the criminals cried out to Jesus, this is what happened. He was convicted of his sins by spending time in the presence of Jesus and seeing this innocent one who was being killed, and yet he was forgiving someone and he realized he was in the presence of God. He listened to this truth of Jesus. He knew in his heart that he was convicted of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. How do I know this? How did I come to this conclusion? I read it in the Bible, just like we're doing now. Verse by verse on this passage. Luke 23, verse 35. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. Verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 38, and an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39, then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. This was the first criminal. It didn't turn out well for him. Notice who he follows. He repeats the mocking taunts of the world of those around him who were crucifying Jesus. That, that's who he chose to follow. This criminal had no fear, no belief, and no humility. But then we hear from the second criminal. And notice what he says and why he says it. And you tell me if you think he did more than just believe in Jesus. Luke 23, verse 40. But the other criminal, answering, rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? By this criminal's very words, he unequivocally states that he fears God. And he knows that he is under condemnation from his sins. But then he also rebuked the other thief on the other side of Jesus. This is more than most people do who claim to be Christian today rebuking people who speak against God. When someone is talking with you and they speak contrary to the truth of Jesus, are you bold enough to tell them that they're wrong? 
that they should fear God because He is truth? Or do you just tell yourself you don't want to get involved? You don't want to start an argument. You don't want to tell others what you believe because that would be too pushy and you might hurt their feelings. This God-fearing criminal was convicted of his sin. He knew his righteousness would not get him to heaven. And he knew that if he didn't acknowledge his sin and turn to Jesus, then he would be eternally judged. So don't tell me that all he did was believe in Jesus. And yet he continued, verse 41, And we indeed are condemned justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. You see, this criminal was humble. He fully admitted his guilt. He knew he was a sinner. He had no excuses. He knew that he was deserving of death. And he acknowledged Jesus' innocence, declaring him to be God, because God is the only one who has done nothing wrong. And because he feared the Lord, he was convicted of his sin and recognized Jesus as God. And so now, because of that, he started in the right way. Now he could turn to Jesus in prayer and ask for his grace. Verse 42, Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This thief began with a healthy fear of God as it is commanded to us in the Bible. Even though the Bible continually repeats the necessity of having a fear in the Lord, that it's the beginning of wisdom, that it prolongs our days, this fact has been canceled in our cancel culture today by modern teaching. Instead of acknowledging the fear of the Lord as the prerequisite for salvation and the fear of the Lord for the beginning of the early growth of the church, Modern translations change the word fear to awe. We were studying in our men's Bible study this week about how the early church started in Acts chapter 2 and I had someone read a modern version, a version, and it said, um, and then awe came upon all the people and they started to grow the church. And I said, well, hold on. My version says, then the fear of God came upon all the church. And you might say, well, that's just a difference in a word that's describing the same thing. I don't know about you. But when I was younger and I got in trouble and I got into a lot of trouble when I was younger. But when I was, when I got into trouble at school, back then if you got into trouble at school, when you got home you got it worse than when you got at school. Do you remember those days? Well, when I was younger and I got in trouble, I didn't say, I'm in awe of my dad. I can't wait for my dad to get home. I said, I fear going home because my dad's going to be upset. You see, these two words are completely different, awe and fear. It's become politically incorrect to say that we should fear God. We should just be in awe of Him. They are completely different words. It's the fear of the Lord which allows us to be convicted, which allows us to be open for God to move in our lives. Do not for one minute believe the politically correct narrative that the fear of God is outdated. That's been happening all over the place. The people are saying the Bible is outdated. We need to update it. The criminal on the cross knew the fear of God. It was the beginning of wisdom for him. He was honest. He repented, admitting his sin and realizing 
that it had a consequence. And even more than that, he now calls Jesus Lord, which means Master. All of these things preceded his request to be saved. He didn't just say, I believe you, and Jesus said, you can come follow me. All of these things biblically happened. This is what the Bible teaches. This is the full course of someone's heart being prepared for the Gospel. Do you remember when John the Baptist came and his mission was to prepare the way of the Lord? He did this by first preaching that we all need to repent. What is repentance? Repentance is changing how we view sin. In true repentance, we no longer think it's okay to sin and disobey God. We no longer justify why we deserve to lust, why we deserve to overindulge or to cuss or to judge others or to gossip or any other sin. We've changed how we view sin. True repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. True repentance changes how we act and how we react immediately when we have sinned and when we have fallen. John had to come first because repentance has to precede believing in the Lord as our judge, our King, our Savior and our Lord. Too many people today wrongly interpret Scripture without knowing its full meaning. Too many churches today do not teach the real definition of repentance. And consequently, too many people wrongly believe because they said a prayer in a church one day that they are Christians, even though they actively engage in sin without repentance. Romans 10, verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. This is taught in many churches today out of context. It's taught that if you say a prayer, the prayer of salvation, and you confess out loud that you believe in Jesus, then you will be saved. But in saying that, they leave out the most important word in this verse. Do you see it? It doesn't tell us to confess that we believe in Jesus. It clearly states that we must confess that He is Lord, just like the thief on the cross did. What does it mean if Jesus is our Lord? It means that He is Lord over our entire lives. He's Lord over your finances. He's Lord over your thoughts. He's Lord over your free time, over your direction in life. He's Lord over your marriage. He's Lord over your family and over all that you do. He's Lord over your conversations with others and over what you watch on TV or stream online. He's Lord over your plans for the future and over all you seek in life. He's Lord over how you portray, portray Him to others and how much time you spend seeking to know Him more. That's what it means to be Lord. This is so much more than modern day evangelism teaches. This is why Jesus taught clearly about the narrow way. Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few, few who find it. 
Because of pride and a refusal to truly believe Jesus at His Word, there are many who do not believe Jesus' statement about the narrow gate. In other words, there are many who go to church and who have not entered by the narrow gate. There are many who are on the broad way right now and refuse to see that Jesus is asking all of us to check our bearings. There are many who believe that they are Christians because they believe in Jesus, but they are not following Him as Lord. There are many this day who would be very offended at my message that they believe I'm speaking too harshly because I'm teaching from the words of Jesus rather than on what they may have been falsely taught by others. And rather than going to the Bible and asking the Holy Spirit to tell us what this means, we have too often been led astray by what a false teacher tells us to make us feel better. Yet the fact of the matter is this. People don't become a minister because it's a great job. It's tough to bear the calling of a minister when God puts it on your life. A minister is not given to you to make you feel better about yourself. A minister is given to prepare your hearts for Jesus, just like John the Baptist did. A minister's job is to keep you on the narrow path by teaching you about the fear of God. A minister's job is to do whatever it takes to put you in a place where you are ready when Jesus comes back for His true saints. Not everyone likes a biblical minister. We've been here almost four years. I can tell you that when we were here for about a month and I gave a tough message and it went a little bit longer than the people were used to, I was brought downstairs in the bottom of the church by two leaders in the church at the time and they reprimanded me for speaking too long. Because they didn't want to beat, they didn't want to hear a long teaching on God's word because it was going to affect their lunchtime. It happens. My job is not to make you happy. And you can be mad at me and people get mad all the time. That's fine. My job is to prepare you and get you ready for Jesus' return. And if I didn't do that, then you would be mad at me and you'd have every right to be. The Bible says, let not many of you presume to be teachers because we receive a greater judgment. If I teach you false stuff, then your blood is on my hands. Ministers of the gospel are shunned and criticized more than others. Why? Because it's far easier to condemn someone who makes you feel uncomfortable in your sin than to actually be convicted by the Word of God and turn to Jesus in repentance. It's hard to be a minister. I have some people that I trust. I've been telling them to pray for me this week because I know I had to give a, a difficult message that God put on my heart. And because of the compassion side, I don't like doing that. But I need to be obedient to God. And if I teach the same perverted message about the thief on the cross because I think it will make you feel better... It doesn't go well for me or you. We are, about, we are asked to be convicted by the Word of God that we might turn to Jesus in repentance. But notice after this, just a few verses later, after Jesus talks about the narrow gate, look at what it says. I believe it's the saddest exchange in the entire Bible. Matthew 7.21 not Jesus is saying this, and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. What Jesus is clearly saying here is that just because you say that you believe, 
it doesn't mean that your eternity is secure in heaven. Just because you go to church and you say the right Christian things, you are not guaranteed to go to heaven. Verse 22, Jesus continues and He says, Many will say to Me in that day, which means Jesus was prophesying for a day like such as today. Many people will say to Me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Your name? Have we not cast out demons in Your name? And done many wonders in Your name? See, Jesus goes on further. Because just because you do the work of God and prophesying and casting out demons and doing wonders in His name, it does not mean that you automatically are going to heaven. That should unsettle us. The unsettling thing about these statements is that He's talking to people who go to church. For it's only church people who prophesy and cast out demons in His name and do wonders in God's name. And yet He clearly states, not just some, but He uses the word many, who call Him Lord, but don't truly follow Him as Lord, will not go to heaven. Verse 23, Jesus says to them, He declares to them, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus declares that they will be turned away from God. They will not enter heaven because they have not chosen the narrow way. They have not chosen to follow Him as Lord. There's a difference in knowing Jesus as your Savior and knowing Him as your Lord. Knowing that this will be the scale that God will weigh our devotion on. Not what we proclaim, not what we've told by, been told by others, but this is the scale. How safe do you feel right now? He may be your Lord in this moment while you're in church listening to this Word, but if you're already thinking, if you're already judging me, thinking that I'm too harsh with this message, is He really your Lord? Will He still be your Lord later today? Or tomorrow? Or during the week? And every moment in this week? This is the truth of the full Gospel. This is what it means to believe in Him. By far and away, many of the churches in our country today have taught a watered-down Christianity. Condensing people that Jesus only has to be your Savior and not the Lord of your life. Yet the Bible teaches that we must know Him and follow Him as our Lord and our Master. That's what the Bible says. This means that we have to deny ourselves daily. We can't help it. We have a sinful nature and it wants us to go astray. We do because we have a sinful nature. But we have to deny that part. And we're not going to be perfect, but that's why we have God's grace. We have to pick up our cross and follow Him daily. It's not easy to be a Christian. It's much harder to be a disciple. But by God's grace, we can do that. Jesus didn't come to make us Christians. He came to make us disciples. The word Christian is only in the Bible three times. The word disciple, on the other hand, is in the Bible more than 261 times, over 230 times in the Gospels alone. Jesus came to make us disciples. Being a disciple is to pray with others, not just say, I'll pray for you, then don't do anything. 
Being a disciple is to study the Word of God accurately with others. Being a disciple is to never stop talking to others about Jesus. It's to be diligent to go into all the world and to make disciples of others. It's to invite others to church, to a Bible study, to a prayer meeting. Take a moment and consider the last time that you've invited someone to church. Is this a common practice that you do all the time? Look around you. There are far more empty seats than filled ones. And it's not this, this church. Church is all over the place, and you know this used to be packed. But nowadays, wherever you go, there's more empty seats than filled ones. And it's too easy to say that the world is going whatever it wants and blame it on the world and blame it on any social movements, but I disagree. It's because too many people who identify themselves identify themselves as Christians instead of disciples. And so they've stopped inviting people to church. They've stopped sharing Jesus with others. They've stopped coming to Bible studies and inviting people to Bible studies. They've stopped inviting people to come to prayer meetings. Many have stopped obeying Jesus to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to know Him as Lord. These are Jesus' words and to pledge our allegiance to Him. This is what it means to be a disciple, as Jesus has commanded all of us to do. This is what the thief on the cross demonstrated when he turned to Jesus. Even though the criminal was nailed to the cross and couldn't move, you think of all the reasons why you don't share Jesus with others? The criminal was nailed to the cross. He couldn't move. And yet he even attempted to witness to the other criminal on the other side of him and to tell him about God. How dare we look at him as a mere criminal when he demonstrated the fear of the Lord, the humility, a rebuke to those mocking God, an acknowledgement of his sin, a repentant heart, an acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord and his absolute need for a Savior. And what was Jesus' reply? Here's the good news. Luke 23, verse 43, And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' response was perfect love. Why do I say that? Because the Scriptures clearly state this. Look at His words in this passage. Assuredly. With this first word, Jesus defeated doubt. No matter what the sinner had done, there is no doubt that Jesus could make all things new, no matter what you have done. No matter if you think you've been on the right path and you realize now that you're not, it doesn't matter if you turn to Jesus. Jesus can make all things new. Do you believe that? If you truly respond to conviction in the same manner. Then He said, I say to you, with these next words, Jesus defeated unworthiness. He spoke directly to this man. It's the same way He speaks directly to you in prayer and through the Word. And sometimes I preach and you think I'm picking on you because you know Jesus is speaking to your heart. But that's the kind of God we serve. He defeats unworthiness because we are now worthy to hear truth from Him. When you know that God is speaking directly to you, it defeats any temptation to believe that you are not worthy. God loves His children. 
who have committed to following Him. And then Jesus said, today. When He made the promise saying today, He defeated worry about what will happen. Jesus is a now God. When we accept His sacrifice and commit to follow Him as Lord, He assures us that we are with Him now and that no one can take Him out of His hand. Are there people that wander and step out of His hand? Yes, they are. But those are Christians and not disciples. When you've come to the place of realizing the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, that brings you into His hand and His heart. And Jesus says, once you've committed, even though there's going to be difficult things that come against you, no one can take you out of my hand. Jesus said, you will be with me. He makes a point to say that you will be with me. Therefore, He defeated rejection. When we approach Jesus in the way that He has taught us, we receive perfect love. Full acceptance. Full forgiveness. Full assurance that He will never leave us nor forsake us. And then Jesus said, You will be with Me in paradise. By mentioning where this man will go, Jesus defeats the unknown. It's the greatest fear we have is the unknown. Where will we go when we die? If we know Him as Lord, our souls will go immediately into heaven to be with Christ for eternity. With these words, Jesus not only speaks to the sinner on the cross, He also speaks to the sinner, to the sinners of the world. You and I. But He speaks to the sinners who are humble, who acknowledge their sins, who turn to Jesus for forgiveness who are willing to follow Him as Lord. If these words have brought conviction to you, if they've caused you to take a deeper look at your commitment, at your beliefs, at what you've been taught, if this message today has unsettled you and has caused you to reassess how you've been living and speaking, then listen to the Holy Spirit and respond. The times we are living in today are very serious times. If you know Bible prophecy, you are seeing things lining up that have been foretold throughout Scriptures. Read Matthew 24 and tell me it's not speaking of today. Jesus indeed is coming back soon for His bride, the church. And so I ask you, are you following the correct story so that you're ready when He comes. What story are you telling? What story are you basing your destiny and your eternity on? If this biblical teaching today has brought you to a place of repentance, of crying out to God for mercy and for grace, then it's proof that this is the living Word of God that still speaks today that the Holy Spirit still convicts souls today not to condemn us, but to change us so that we can spend an eternity of joy with Him where He wipes away every tear from our eyes. Jesus Christ is the answer for everyone in need of a Savior if we follow Him as Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the power in Your Word.
Heavenly Father, we thank You that Your Word does unsettle us, that it does convict our sinful flesh. But we also thank You that we do not stay in condemnation. If we are open to You and repent and come to You, God, then You receive us and You cleanse us and You forgive us and You redeem us and You allow us to walk in peace and in Your perfect love and in Your perfect grace. We thank You that You are alive today and still convict us to make us become more like You. And so as we go forward this day, we declare what we believe in You, Jesus. Bless us as Your body. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Looks like I have something here to share an announcement. Debbie Livingston. I just want to um, say that I think I heard one of the most powerful sermons today that I have ever heard in my entire life. I hope that everyone was truly listening. And I'd like to thank Pastor Brad for that sermon. Um, He said, I think very importantly, that his job is not to make us feel good. And a lot of, I think, preachers feel that that is their job. And there's a lot of touchy-feeling, feel-good spirituality out there that isn't really coming from the Bible. And our pastor is speaking to us the truth from the Bible. And I just want to thank him for that and um, express my appreciation. And on behalf, I believe, of our whole congregation for that sermon and for everything that he does in teaching us about the Lord. So thank you, Pastor Brad.